0: Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Maria Dorfler, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Yale University and winner of the Best First Book in the History of Religions Award. She's here to speak to us about her book, uh, Jephthah's Daughter, Sarah's Son, The Death of Children in Late Antiquity, published with University of California Press. Uh, Congratulations, Maria, and thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Christian. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I'm also tremendously honored, and uh, still kind of feel this what you me uh, sort of sentiment that I imagine a lot of the winners feel. But uh, delighted to talk with you.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting. I would I would imagine. Um, so this this is a really interesting topic. Um, you you tap into how Christian authors. Uh, are using biblical characters to make sense of the death of children in late antiquity. And I'm I'm wondering if you could just start with, you know, where did this project begin for you? And what were the uh, types of interventions you were hoping to make with this project?
1: Thanks so much for this question, because, of course, you know, trying to figure out origin stories um, is uh, uh, is is always the huge temptation. But this is a project that actually began when I was still a graduate student. It is not my dissertation, but uh, um, one of the things that I've been drawn to uh, ever since I have been doing um, what we might in a loose sense call scholarly work is this question of how people, both individuals and communities, interpret their authoritative texts. Whatever those authoritative texts might be, they might be uh, laws, they might be philosophical teachings, they might be sacred scriptures, and specifically how they interpret those in times of crisis. So I I sometimes refer to myself a little bit tongue-in-cheek as a, a historian of exegesis, as an extreme sport. (laughs) <laughs> so one of the uh, um, one of the places of course that usually constitutes an exigency, um, a situation that uh, uh, really tends to force interpretation is the context of death. And um, when I was a graduate student and uh, um, working, as uh, all graduate students do, on my language skills, um, I had a wonderful instructor recommend that I might translate a particular verse homily by a sixth century dude by the name of Jacob of Sorok. Um Everybody who works in Syriac studies or you know, has been loosely acquainted with that field knows him in large part because he's just wildly prolific. Um, um, we have uh, hundreds upon hundreds of extended, beautiful uh, and for a grad student, difficult to translate, uh, verse homilies from him. And um, one of the uh, sort of unusual things about this is and something that I will truly attribute simply to the fact that um, we, have homil- we have so many homilies by him is that there is one that specifically addresses the death of children this is a topic that is really unusual among early Christian writings. There is, um, you know, I can think of just a couple of other examples uh, within the genre of homiletics. There's a little bit more if we expand this out in terms of commemoration of, you know, the childrens of really important persons, of kings, etc. But um, So much of the study of uh, early Christianity and late antiquity is dominated by one very particular voice, uh, and it will not shock you when I say that it's the voice of Augustine of Hippo. So um, uh, for me, too, um, coming into the translation of this homily, my general assumption was that, um, you know, the death of children is... uh, something that's relatively unproblematic. Um, uh, the questions about it hinge on whether or not the child has been baptized, uh, as you know tends to be the case for Augustine. And what I found in this homily was just something completely different. Um, it was uh, a, uh, on the one hand, for the first time really in uh, late ancient sources, an extended valorization of uh, not just uh, the death of children, which, um, as you may imagine, in pre-modernity is very, very common. But it was also just an extended reflection upon the nature of children that had very little to do with the assumptions that I had brought to that conversation. So I was intrigued by this. And at the time uh, I published an article on this topic but it's something that just kept tugging at me specifically because of my fascination with how in these crisis situations. And I think I can say with about as much comfort as I think I will ever have about an academic topic that um, even in a context in which childhood mortality was very common, the figures for this are wildly disputed, but we'll probably pitch that somewhere between 30% 30% of children and 50% of children um, dying within the first 10 years of their lives, um, with a strong sort of the a lot of that happening during the first years of their lives. So even in a context in which such death is very, very common uh, in pre modernity, the death of a child constitutes a crisis event for both the the mother, the family, but also in a very real sense for the community. And these are the situations in which um, I I was just, um, I was beginning to think more about the ways in which different authors make sense of that occurrence and the ways in which they also use their understanding that this crisis event, this incredibly quotidian crisis event Um, is something that afflicts, uh, would have afflicted virtually all members of their communities, how they use that understanding to allow it to shape their interpretation of authoritative texts, specifically, of course, of uh, scripture in that setting. So that's really how it started. And uh, from there, I began to pull on that thread, starting with some very obvious topics and uh, then making my way to uh, uh, biblical passages I had not expected to show up, but it nevertheless kept showing up in this context. And um, I'm not going to say before you knew it, there was a book because as you know, (laughs) that's a very lengthy and uh, uh, labor intensive process. Uh, that did not just hinge on me, but on many wonderful readers and commentators and editors, uh, to whom I'm exceedingly grateful. But um, a truly sort of tripping down that particular primrose path, um, that rather dark primrose path, uh, is how I uh, ended up with this.
0: Yeah, um, it, it is really interesting because this this kind of uh, back and forth between the interpreters and the text uh, comes out in really interesting ways. And uh, you, you do kind of set the story up with a little bit of kind of social historical context about uh, death and uh, ritual burial and mourning practices. Um, but I, I'd like to jump into um, some of the uh, interpretive work in the, um, around biblical characters, because many of these will be well-known to, to listeners, uh, but these authors really uh, interpret them in very interesting ways. So, you know, of course, people would probably imagine that the, the start with uh, Adam and Eve uh, and the context of, of their children. Can you talk a little bit about how parental loss was explored through these subjects?
1: Yeah. So uh, it's interesting to me that you think people will first and foremost think of Adam and Eve uh, <laughs> uh, in as much um, as... I guess start well,
0: at the beginning.
1: <laughs> begin begin at the beginning, I love it. And uh, as you know, um, that's uh, that's actually uh, chapter two right after the socio-historical chapter uh, in the book. But in some ways that really was a surprise for me because um, as uh, many of our listeners will know, Uh, Eve does not get a good rep uh, in quite a lot of uh, um, writings uh, from early Christianity, Um, she is, uh, you know, the devil's gateway um, to throw around one rather common um, quotation here. But in this context, Eve takes on a different valence. And one of the things that's fascinating and continuously fascinating to me uh, for uh, late ancient and pre-modern authors more generally is that um, they are so deeply committed to the nuances of a story that they notice were their absences in those stories. So for example, um, we might in due course get to the chapter on um, the binding of Isaac, um, which is a chapter that um, you know, focuses to a significant extent upon Sarah, Isaac's mother. Um, but Sarah as a character is completely absent from the narrative of the binding of Isaac in the context of the Hebrew scriptures. In the same way, um, I think when most readers encounter the story of Cain and Abel, you know, this could be in a contemporary setting, the drama of crime and punishment, or, you know, raise questions about um, acceptance um, versus, you know, not acceptance uh, with the divine. But for a lot of late ancient readers, it really stuck out that, Eve was in fact, uh, even Adam were in fact the first bereaved parents in history, that it is not just a matter of, you know, Abel being killed by Cain, but that at the time that occurs, Abel is the child, is the offspring um, of parents who would have um, within the early Christian imaginative framework never before encountered death. So this is something that is new and dramatic and also dramatically bad. In a sense, really, this is the first dramatic instantiation Um, of that curse that, um, that uh, the first couple experiences in the context of Genesis. And here we see Eve unexpectedly sympathetic. Um, We see her, uh, we see her grieving, we see her uh, horrified. We see her deep sympathy um, with her offspring, which is which is truly an unexpected perspective on Eve, both for the context of early Christianity and uh, I would expect also for a lot of contemporary readers of that narrative.
0: Yeah, and uh, as you move into uh, these other narratives, uh, the one about uh, Sarah really is, is very striking because... Um, It it really relies on the role of these interpreters. Um, So, of course, most listeners will probably be familiar with uh, the story of uh, Abraham's uh, sacrifice of his son. Um, But can you tell us how uh, your authors uh, made sense of of sacrifice through uh, Isaac's mother, Sarah?
1: Yeah, so, um, as I've already suggested, for the reader of Genesis 22, that is the chapter um, that discusses the sacrifice of Isaac, the binding of Isaac, uh, what's known as the Akedah, my expectation is that most contemporary readers would move through that entire chapter and never notice the absence of Sarah. And part of that may have to do with the fact that Genesis is um, helpfully or unhelpfully indeterminate when it comes to the question of just how old Isaac actually is or how one ought to picture Isaac at the point of his being taken to the mountain in order to be bound or in order to be sacrificed. The story perches right between narratives of, uh, you know, Isaac's birth and childhood on the one hand, And on the other hand, the death of Sarah and uh, particularly rabbinic interpretation, that link has been explored in really interesting ways. So this could be, in other words, a very young child, or it could be, um, you know, let's call it a middle-aged, fully adult man. Um, There are clues within the story, um, within the biblical narrative that might point us uh, into one direction or another direction, but many Christian interpreters are actually very committed to seeing Isaac as a young child. In fact, there's one source that notices the text internal cues, which is to say that, um, you know, Isaac ends up carrying stuff up that mountain and says, uh, basically, it was a miracle that, you know, Isaac had, even as this very young child, the ability and the power to carry this. Of course, when we also think about Isaac as a young child, that raises the question of how does his father abscond with um, a little kid? without even doing so much as giving notice to uh, the child's mother, to his spouse. And for late ancient readers, this is something that, this is a lacuna that calls for explanation, that calls for interpretation. Not least of all, because um, for many of them, this neglect of Sarah and the potential of Abraham absconding with Isaac without notifying Sarah, either in her capacity as Isaac's mother, or in her capacity as Abraham's wife, with whom he would have wished to share this experience. This is something that is troubling to late ancient interpreters and what this uh, creates room for and um, the midrashic interpretive techniques uh, that are very common in rabbinic interpretation also show up a lot in early Christian interpretation, um, more so perhaps in the Syrian and Greek realm, at times a little bit less for this uh, in the Latin context, but it really is something that we see very broadly. This allows the opportunity to write Sarah into the story and to create in Sarah a character that would be relatable for audiences. If you look at the biblical narrative, um, Abraham throughout the entire experience of being told to take his son up the mountain, is relatively stoic. There are no real expressions of emotions that one would expect of a father, or at least that late ancient interpreters would have expected of a parent. And of course, in many regards, this contributes to Abraham's glorification in early Christian context, that he is so committed to the divine, that he is so committed to following God's command, even against his own personal inclinations, that uh, that arises as a virtue for him. And that notwithstanding, there is, I think, among late ancient readers, also a sense of horror that attends this. And Sarah is inserted into this story as a character that more often than not is able to voice the horror and the grief and the desire to bargain with God in the face of a child's uh, impending death. Um, So she becomes this compensatory figure that takes on the emotions of the situation. Her character, in many regards, allows Abraham to be who he is in the biblical narrative, while at the same time also humanizing the entire story.
0: Um, Another key figure for uh, late antique writers, um, or was the family of Job in in general. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how Job and his wife and his children um, were were used by late antique authors to explore ideas about loss and grief?
1: Sure. So, you know, in many regards, Job is uh, a counterpoint to Abraham. Um, He is the figure that early Christian writers, indeed later Christian writers too, tend to call upon most enthusiastically um, when they wish to illustrate someone who, uh, to have someone who illustrates patience and who illustrates complete submittedness to whatever the divine will might be in this setting. Um, The death of Job's children is something that in many regards becomes a footnote to contemporary readings of the story. But um, as you may recall, in the very beginning of Job, there is a bargain being struck between between God and uh, Hasatan, that is to say, the adversary, who, incidentally, in the context of Job, cuts a very different sort of figure than um, what uh, uh, contemporary Christian readers might think about when they're, uh, or at least what my students tend to think about um, when they hear the term Satan. And uh, all this uh, proceeds into the testing of Job. And, you know, the testing comes across. It, it leads to the death of his slaves, it leads to the death of his herds, it leads to Job's own affliction um, with uh, um, with great physical illness. But in the midst of all this, there's also the account of the death of Job's children, all of Job's children in one fell swoop. And for a lot of ancient writers, this is this rather than actually Job's being struck with illness himself is really the climactic moment in all this. Um, This is the person breaking intervention of the adversary into Job's life. And so there are some very interesting things that uh, uh, interpreters do with this in some rare instances, they try to write into it narratives of justification. um, uh, As you know, indeed, um, the the book of Job does in the last chapter, um, uh, something that probably was not part of the original text. Um, by way of um, uh, Joe passing the test and um, getting compensatory children um, uh, to make up for the ones that had died. But realistically speaking, this doesn't satisfy modern audiences. And I think it also really did not satisfy early Christian audiences. And so this particular narrative of the death of multiple kids is something that... um, I think we see in early Christian interpretations as um, really the climax of uh, human suffering, both for Job himself and uh, um, also for Job's wife, who again, of course, gets a very bad rep, um, both in um, the narrative itself uh, and uh, in quite a lot of interpretations. But there are versions of the story that um, also craft her as a... Uh, um, as the long-suffering and as the supportive spouse and as the supportive bereaved mother that we don't necessarily see in the biblical text or in perhaps some of the most familiar interpretations thereof. Hmm.
0: Uh, it, there's a there's a lot more to the book uh, that I'd love to get into, but we just don't have the time. But I do <laughs> want to ask you a little bit about um, how you see other people within uh, the mm-hmm. AAR Um kind of drawing from your book, either in uh, the way you've constructed it or your your approaches or this kind of theme uh, focusing on uh, the death of children. How how might you imagine others could uh, get into your work?
1: This is such a good question, especially since, you know, like most of us, we write books, uh, we write our work for both a broader and a narrower audience, you know, we, we think about readers who might primarily think of themselves as historians or classicists or philosophers or theologians. Um, and you know, these are people that I certainly hope will also be interested in the discourses surrounding parental bereavement and childhood mortality in antiquity. But I think for those who are engaged in the study of religion, um, which is really where I locate myself. and I have to say the process of writing this book has been helpful also in confirming and constructing my disciplinary identity. So for those engaged in the study of religion, I would say there's perhaps two sort of additional related hopes on my part. The first uh, and perhaps most obvious takeaway um, has to do with allowing ourselves to be surprised by our sources. I think at a certain point in our scholarship of any given topic, we sort of know what to expect. And when we come across Uh, uh, things that uh, uh, frustrate those expectations, the exception that, if you will, and this is an infelicitous turn of phrase, that prove the rule, we, or I guess I should say I, tend to sort of relegate them to footnotes. Um, That is to say, when we take notice of them at all. Um, I do that, um, I get that. And frankly, often that's the entirely right thing to do with those exceptional cases. On the other hand, I will say that every truly exciting project I've embarked upon, um, and uh, I've already talked a little bit about how this came out in the context of this book, it really began with this moment of stumbling over one of those minority reports in a text or a place in a manuscript that kind of gave me that knee-jerk reaction of, wait, that's wrong and then sort of sitting with it and letting it expand my thinking about what might be possible or imaginable or what stories might be tellable in light of that and that's something i've tried to do in the context of this book and uh, that um, that may be provocative or interesting or potentially helpful to other readers related to this the second potential takeaway Involves precisely these stories that I've referenced that we end up telling about our subjects Um, my work takes place mostly in um, the field of late ancient studies and. um, As many of our readers will know, this means that I stand in a long lineage of scholars who have been and continue to be truly exceptional storytellers. Now, religion is obviously both a global and really profoundly local phenomenon uh, as well as, you know, if we think in temporal terms, one extended, as my undergraduates like to say, from time immemorial to these absolutely punctilious, defined in time kinds of acts. So when constructing stories, um, we inevitably need to think about scale. And, uh, you know, the question of how can you do justice to the particular setting, the particular event, the particular text without sort of isolating it from that larger narrative arc to which it belongs. I'm by nature someone who is, uh, and probably also by training, uh, someone who really seeks to resist big stories, um, even as I find them very seductive. And uh, I find myself drawn a lot of times to that, which at first glance seems very particular and very personal, the consolation letter, the burial inscription, the sermon crafted for a very particular audience. And those stories are interesting and worthwhile. And my work has been to try to honor those particularities, but at the same time, each of them is implicated in larger discourses. That sermon is not just written for an audience, but it is written down and it is copied and disseminated and preserved for future generations. That burial inscription does not, in its own form, attest to some pure emotion experienced by just one or two individuals, but it partakes of the broader discourses um, of how one speaks about these kinds of emotions and what can be made speakable within those emotional communities. And so, for me, One of the challenges and one of the pleasures of this book has been playing with these stories, modulating them and thinking about scale moving through that, while trying to be honoring both of the particularity and the much broader arc. Um, And again, I think this is something that is shared by many of us in the field of religious studies. I love seeing this in other people's books. And uh, maybe this is an experiment that will be interesting um, for some of our audience who do not otherwise take a primary interest in early Christianity or childhood mortality or anything along those lines.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to put, put it. And I hope um, some uh, people outside of your subdiscipline will pick it up because it, it is a great book. And congrats again on the award.
1: Thank you so much, Christian. And I should also mention, thanks to the University of California Press who has been amazing. And I would like to strongly plug in this conversation. Um, It's also really, really affordable. I think the hard copy comes in at about $27 at this point. So um, get one for your library, even if you don't necessarily need one for your personal library.